Sifter, the podcast. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming, action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. The popular series Snowpiercer, based on the movie of the same name, launched its third season last week on TNT, with a new pirate train branching off from the original to find a place to restart civilization. Judging from the first episode, this season looks like a lot more action and a lot less conversation. They're also promising surprises, and since I enjoyed the first seasons, I'll be watching. By the way, it's already been renewed for season four. After 40 years at WBBT, which is now called NBC12, Jim Duncan retired last year. We caught up with him to see what he's been up to since then and how he got started. Jim, welcome to the Sifter Podcast. Now, first and most important question, Sharknados. Is Richmond far enough from the ocean that we don't have to worry about Sharknados? Absolutely, Jerry. Now, does that make you feel safer? Have you ever actually had to witness the Sharknado? No, I have not. Have you actually seen one of the movies? They're pretty hilarious. I have not, Jerry. Am, am I missing something big now? You know, obviously, uh, any kind of tornado that's going to pick up sharks out of the ocean is ridiculous, but they're pretty over the top and absurd, and they're kind of fun. If you see one coming on, or if you can find one on streaming, you probably get a good laugh out of it. All right, I'm going to pencil that in. I remember they were big, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah. It's been a couple of years since they've been around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of been around, you were around NBC 12 for 40 years before you left, what, a couple months ago, right? Well, I left back in the end of March. So April 1st was my first day not being officially with NBC 12. There's yeah. got to be some kind of April Fool's joke in there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Actually, I think there probably were a few of those jokes on social media uh, <laughs> that day and that day after. But uh, the timing was right in terms of the time of year as we get you know, out past the winter time and uh, decided, yeah, you know, this is the time. So, yeah, it's been almost a year now. So wow, it's wow, hard to believe. Sure so how'd you get into weather? It's kind of a geeky thing. I was a snow, kind of a snow fanatic back in, not kind of, I really was a, a true snow fanatic growing up in upstate New York. I just always loved snow. I don't know why. And decided fortuitously that I should make a career out of it. So I, I started out getting my undergraduate degree in mathematics at a small school upstate New York, up in Syracuse, Lemoyne College. Then, you know, I thought, you know what? I always love weather. I just want to go into this. So I got my master's at Albany State during atmosphere. Science. So that's kind of how I, kind, you know, I kind of science? atmospheric science. Whoa. Okay. That sounds very, I guess is that is that fancy talk for a weather guy. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you do before you got to uh, NBC 12? I wanted to stay up in the snow belt because that was my interest and fascination in weather. But, you know, at the time, now this is 42 years ago now, back in 1980, ended up finding a job, several small market jobs. One was in, in Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, I think another one was in Beaumont, Texas, both very small TV markets. And then I just didn't want want to travel that far. And I ended up in Greenville, North Carolina. <laughs> it was ironic uh, here. My interest in weather was due to snow. And here I was packing a U-Haul trailer uh, in 1980 with all my worldly belongings and hauling them down to the uh, mid-Atlantic and what I considered pretty far south <laughs> at the time. If you want to hear how I piqued uh, curiosity in terms of TV, it was um, basically related to meeting a local TV weather people up there in Albany, New York. Uh, toured the local TV stations and just kind of discovered uh, that this was a great avenue to uh, do weather forecasting. So one year down there in North Carolina in 1980, I uh, again saw another classified ad in the trade magazine. 
for a, a job up here in Richmond. I remember thinking, this is going to be my big move back north <laughs> to <Yeah>. snow country. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I snow now, so that helps a little bit. Right. And I remember um, meeting my folks. Uh, they came down to uh, visit Williamsburg and such. So I remember taking the bus from Greenville to Richmond uh, to meet them. And getting out of the Trailways bus station on Broad Street in Richmond and thinking, wow, this is this is a big city. I mean, this is really it just struck me like, wow, this would be a really cool city to work in. And so it just kind of serendipitously ended up that a job opened up and uh, I, I got hired here back in 1981. So how long was it before you got your first real snowstorm to forecast? The first one was uh, actually down in North Carolina, where it was like a front coming through. And from the north, I thought, well, these fronts are going to bring us snow. But uh, I didn't realize that the mountains like the Blue Ridge really block all of the cold air. And, and I really it was a total bust. I remember calling for two or three inches of snow. This is after I've been on the job down there for maybe two or three months. And uh, I called for three or four inches of snow. And little did I know that that really happens in eastern North Carolina. And it was, of course, sunny and dry. And so that was kind of my first (laughs) first humbling experience. (laughs) And then up here, really, my first big snow, I remember here in Richmond was in 1983, near Valentine's Day, just around 17, 18 inches of snow. So that's kind of what sticks still sticks in my memory is that 1983 snow here. So how would you say technology has changed in those 40 years? Even in the 80s, you were still standing green screen in front of a map, right? Well, we didn't even use a green screen when I started, uh, Jerry. We, uh, you know, I used the, the acrylic crayons basically uh, to draw highs and lows on a map. And oh, right. Yeah. So it was, but the changes happened quickly then. I remember we got our first color graphics. It was called uh, Color Graphics. That was the name of the, and it was just wow, wow, this is just tremendous. And uh, so that's when we started using the green screen more. This evolved since then. You know, we're now it's still green screen, but now we use the the video walls and all of that kind of stuff too. Right, right. Dancing snowflakes and everything like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. The so, meteorology itself has changed as well. I mean, the, the forecasting has gotten tremendously better over all of these years. So speaking of that, what app do you use if you're looking for the weather? What do you? And don't tell me NBC Twelve. I mean, well, I will actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, that because you know I have I, I have probably have about a dozen TV station weather apps on my phone, and uh, NBC Twelve is honestly is my go-to weather app locally uh, because I was you know heavily involved in that all those years. So you don't use like Weather Underground or the Weather Channel or any of those that uh, common folks use. I do. I have the AccuWeather app. I have the okay. uh, the Weather Channel app. I do have all of those apps. Um, and there's lots of different weathery kind of nerdy apps that are really cool. Like it's called Radar Scope, which is a a very good radar app. Right. Well, speaking of weather and NBC 12. Somebody's knocking at my Zoom door. What is this all about? Hold on a minute. Hello, we're having a... Hello, Hello. I want to talk about the weather. Who is this? Who is this? Interrupting this call so rudely. Hey, TV, Jerry. I think I recognize him as a stalker. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew! Jim, Jim, look outside your window. I'm looking in right now. I'm cold. Let me in. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I got my deadbolts on. I'm too lazy to get up and open Footnote. Andrew Frieden has been a meteorologist at NBC 12 since 2000. He's currently on the morning shift. I got an invitation from Jerry to hop in here and, he, he, and to add a little flavor. I wish I could have heard it. I was on mute for a while, so I don't know what you guys been talking about. But uh, Oh, thank goodness. We weren't talking about you. Don't get excited. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine. But any chance to say some nice things about Jim, I will jump at the opportunity. Hey, Jerry, you remember that show, This Is Your Life? I don't know. That goes way back. But right, sure. Groucho Marx. This feels like a mini version of this. Hey, this... <laughs> Bringing Andrew in. 
There you go. Well, Andrew, tell us your most interesting, hilarious, or embarrassing story about Jim. When I first started working here, Jim and I worked together, and it was a really great experience for me. How long ago was uh, number that? Number one, it was in 2000, in the summer of 2000. And our shifts were literally at the same time. I did the Fox News, he did the 11 o'clock, and we worked together in the evenings. And so I got a lot of time to get to know Jim, and I was blown away and still am at the fact he sort of like, I was worried that people with big egos and look at me and I'm right kind of stuff was going to be like something I was going to deal with for this entire career that I had ahead of me. And all of a sudden, I got to work with this guy who basically was like, no, for him, it was always, and I think is always, the forecast is the, is the number one thing and all the other stuff comes afterwards. It was a great lesson for me to learn from, you know, one of the best guys to ever do it, that it's about the content. It's about the forecast. And if you can get the forecast right, everything else, all the other success will follow. Right, right. Hey, so Andrew, that- I just unlocked the door for you. <laughs> <laughs> Come That's on in, buddy. <laughs> all right. So let me get to the good stuff now. So Jim is a, a car shopping addict. When I shifted to the morning crew, the morning shift, and I didn't work with Jim in the morning, I always knew what was going on with Jim's life because occasionally he would leave things on the printer that he would print and forget to grab. Cars, like he was always shopping for cars. And I was like, what is the deal with this guy? (laughs) Jim, do you still love shopping for cars? I do. I kind of lost that because, you know, financially, I realized this is really dumb. Uh, a few years ago. So I, I, I keep my cars now uh, several years versus years ago. And I, I don't know, it was just kind of, you know, one of those things. And so you're not a Jay Leno type. You don't have like a garage full of like 20 cars or anything. You no, have one or, I buy, one or I'll buy one, get tired of it and buy, buy another one. Much Well, it's time to start thinking about an EV. Now you can save the weather and uh, save. Andrew some has an EV. Tell, tell him about what do you uh, have, Andrew? Well, this isn't about me, but I drive a Chevy Bolt. Love it. I'll tell you, we'll have to have a drive off sometime because I've got a Tesla and I drove a Volt and I'm like, oh, Tesla is so much cooler. But of course, I'm so much cooler than you anyway, Andrew. So, well, yes. And you also paid twice as much for yours as I oh, did. Well, that if not, <laughs> at Jim's core, he is a very good person. He's basically why I'm still here. If if he wasn't a good guy, I would have been like, I'm not working here much longer. I got to get out of here. Don't lay all that blame on me now. <laughs> yeah, uh, all your fault. <laughs> well, Andrew, thanks for dropping in. Thank you, Andrew. It's an honor to be on here with you, Jim. Jim, I will talk to you soon. Probably in the next couple of days, I'll get a text message or vice versa. I'll talk yep. to you soon. Yep. Take it easy. Hey, Jerry. Yep. It is true. Andrew and I do communicate regularly. So it, it, it's kind of cool. You know, we stay in touch, but I still don't want a lot of them in my house. But so. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's funny that he just called in at that moment because my next question was going to be, so which anchor at the station did you hate the most? <laughs> oh, gosh. Talk about setting me up. I Nobody can't... ever usually answers those kind of questions, but I always like to throw it out there to see what yeah, they say. I, I didn't, I'm not one to really hate anybody. I think we through the turnstiles 40 years, uh, probably there were hundreds of different people sure, I've worked sure. with there. It was just really cool to see so many of the younger folks come through, especially in recent years as I've gotten older, and progress to bigger markets like Ryan Nobles, who is at CNN now, used to work with us. Is there anybody else you can think of off the top of your head that's like somebody who's done really well that's on a network or something like that now? I don't know if it's Aaron uh, up in um, D.C. Oh, Aaron Gilchrist. I remember Aaron. He actually did videos for me when he was still in high school. He was a great guy. 
Isn't he up in D.C. now? I think he's last I heard he was in D.C. Yeah, I think he works for NBC uh, Network in D.C. So I don't know if you remember Campbell Brown. She ended up with NBC Network, I think, for a while. And uh, too bad I didn't think of Aaron. I would have had him call in. That would have been a nice surprise. That would have been cool. Aaron and I, I worked with Aaron, you know, for three or four years. And he was just I think he was just an intern when he started. Let me switch over to. COVID, because I know when COVID hit, I recently just watched the second season of the morning show and they end up getting into COVID by the end. And as everybody knows, that just put everything on an upheaval and TV stations were having to scramble. How did you have to deal with that? Did you have to create a green screen at home? Did you just sit in your bedroom and do the forecast or did you have to come in and wear a mask? How exactly did you cope with COVID during all that? Uh, so we we did really well in terms of monitoring the risk at the station and wearing masks and all of that. Of course, being on TV in a studio, you don't wear your mask. So that made it uh, tricky. And that's why during the peak of it, uh, a lot of us uh, just, and we had the option, decided to work from home. It was an interesting experience. We I set up things with um, the video and stuff with with my iPhone. I had a- Wow. You know, I, I could shoot it myself with a phone. I, they, I did get some lighting from work and some assistance with that. And then we just fed it all through the through the web. It was cool. I could do it from my backyard, did it from my basement. I never used a green screen. Could you wear your like your jammies and stuff on the lower half and just, you know? I, I, I could if I, I, I wanted, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Jerry, I did a lot of them outside. So that would have been kind of... Oh. But uh, and that was in January. (laughs) But yeah, of course, I know on the big networks, they have all kind of consultants that come in and do makeup and hair and give you a wardrobe budget and all that stuff. How fancy is it at the local stations? Do you have any of those kind of things? You have consultants come in and talk to you about those kind of things. And do you get a budget for clothes or is everything on your own? There used to be in the day, the budgets for clothes were, were common, called clothing allowances. And um, yeah, we used to. And you know, I don't know what the current protocol is is there now. And in terms of makeup and all of that, uh, we did have consultants come in and tell us, <laughs> I'll never forget this, Jerry. <laughs> We had a consultant come in uh, this many years ago, and I had worn the same suits, I guess, for several years. And, and a consultant came in. They brought this uh, person in from New York City. And I walked in the room, and the first thing she said to me is she said, darling, you look awful. Oh, <laughs> she, nice. she said, that suit looks horrible on you. And and so what she basically was saying, the suit didn't fit for, I might have lost weight or gained weight or whatever. And she said, and it was out of style. And, and so she said, you have to promise me when I come back here in a year that you will have bought at least three new suits. So that was kind of my story with a consultant. So since you have signed off the air, what have you been up to? I've been really busy and uh, I'm just kind of that personality where I have to keep active doing shopping doing. for cars, right? <laughs> shopping for cars. Actually, I haven't done that in a while, but my activities focus around weather and I, I actually have a real estate license too. I've had a, a, a broker's license in real estate for 40 years. So I always thought I'd be going into real estate uh, as a kind of my next career move and I still may, but the uh, I, I found that uh, through my weather consulting business uh, that I've kind of developed uh, just a lot of business. So I do some media consulting for weather teams. I've done a little bit of that where I travel and kind of 
look at whether teams, what they're doing and, and advise, you know, how they can better use their computer systems and branding and things like that. And so I've done a bit of that. I'm um, teaching at the U of R. I've done a bit of teaching for them and I'm developing a little class for them coming up this spring. I did one last fall. I've written some pieces for the Washington Post. In fact, they tell me today, one of something I wrote yesterday will be appearing on their digital site. It's about uh, meteorologists and how we uh, rely on computer models too much sometimes and that sort of thing. As opposed to just sticking your hand out the door and going, oh, wait a minute, that's not right. Right, correct. <laughs> so, so I find actually I'm kind of discovering a, a new new niches for where I want to go with the, with my weather interest and passion. And and I think writing is one of those. And I also think um, I'm, I'm doing some stuff with the uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch on a limited basis. Uh, Sean Sublett is the uh, chief meteorologist. He was just hired there last year. Right, right. And so we're doing some video stuff. I enjoy collaborating with them in, in limited ways as well. So, And of course, you're working out at Gold's. That's where we actually met. Was it Gold's Gym exactly. at Little Lawn a few years yeah, back? Little Lawn. I don't know if you were, but I was one of the original members there. No, uh, no, I didn't join until they actually put the pool in. And then I was there the next week. And that pool was nice. But then, they, you know, as you know, they took it out. Yep. That's why you don't see me anymore. <laughs> I'm saying we, we used to run up to each other, what, once every month or two? Anyway. At least, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does your wife like having you around the house more? Is she going crazy or is she okay with it? She's fine with it, I think. <laughs> but she works as well. So she, she, it's an adjustment for everyone, I guess, because I've been on a schedule for 40 years now where right. I would work evenings. I was so lucky, Jerry, in my career that I fell into this evening TV mode. In other words, I would go on at three and come home at 1130, but I get a nice long dinner break in the evening. I could come home and have dinner. And, and so it gave me family time, but also kept me out of the busiest traffic times of the day. And um, it just worked out for my entire career. Really great. Speaking of being at home and enjoying life, so what TV show or movies are, have you been seeing lately that you're kind of into? I don't watch a lot of TV, and I never have because of my schedule. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's kind of getting into the mode of watching new programming and stuff on TV it has been you know, not something that I've, I've done a lot of, but what we have watched recently is the Kaminsky Method. Oh, that's great. That's great fun. It was better until uh, this, the last season when Alan Arkin was not yeah. in the show. It didn't wasn't quite as funny because he was great in the show. Yeah, and I, I did like the character, uh, Paul Reiser's character. Yeah, it was so funny because when I first saw him, who is that? And then I went and looked and it's total makeup because he doesn't. I thought, has he really gone the pot? Pun intended in that case, actually. He had really thin hair and pulled back in a long ponytail, and he was overweight and he looked like a wasted hippie, which was kind of the character. And I Googled that, you know, probably a lot of people that Googled him to see, okay, does he really look like this? That's now? what I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was a great show. And you're right. I agree. The, the final season without Alan Arkin, he's just such a great actor. That was probably sticks out in my mind as the thing that really, I wish there were more seasons of that with, with good content. And then in terms of movies, Movies we watch don't look up. Oh, which I loved. And it's got a weather component for you. Yeah, the climate change component. And uh, so it was, um, I thought it was a little bit over the top. At first, I thought, oh, gosh. Uh, but then as it got going, I thought it really gets you thinking. And so loved it. Yeah. Obviously, it's Adam McKay. And he, you know, that's what his thing is over the top yeah. satire. Let me ask you this. This is an important question. Did you watch all the way through the credits to the very end? I can't remember. Well, I don't want to say it on the podcast because I don't want to give anything away. But if you didn't, there was one, what they call a mid credit. You know, they do the opening credits at the end and then they had they had a little surprise 
And then at the very end, after all the credits, they had a second surprise. I did not see that, Jerry, because I remember walking out of all the credits were rolling at the end. So I might have missed that, I guess. I'll have to tell you when we when we get okay. off this. I don't right. want to spoil it. But let me just add this. You know, the best place to find all the most interesting things about movies and TV in town, don't you? Of course, it's TV Jerry. Well, you're no longer TV Jerry. Though. Well, yeah, that's t- well, still the site's TV Jerry. And my Sister. license plate still says TV Jerry. But yeah, there you go. And actually, in my reviews, I always, as I did in the Don't Look Up review, always say, stay through the credits if there's a surprise at the end. Well, Jim, this has been fascinating. And I've learned some new things about you today. And I miss seeing you at Gold's. Likewise. Thank you so much. So I guess now you can go outside and enjoy some of this frigid, below 30 degree weather we're having. You'll feel like you're back up in New York State. Yeah, I guess. And you know, I'm getting more acclimated to the South. (laughs) After 40 some years, that happens. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Good to talk to you. Bye. Now I'm talking about longtime old friend Mike Jones, who I guess, Mike, we met when you were way back at the Biograph as the manager. Yes, yes. Footnote. If you're younger or newer to town, the Biograph Theater was a classic repertory cinema featuring foreign art and experimental films on Gray Street near VCU. It ran from 1972 to 1987. It was also where the Rocky Horror Picture Show played at midnight for many years with full audience participation. Back, Jerry. You may not remember this, but when you were uh, working for a video company, your offices was above the dirt shirt on Carey Street. Do you remember that? Heilig Myers. That's it. You were working for Heilig Myers. Right, in the 70s. I had, to write, I had to write this stuff out. and I didn't do very well, but anyway, I had to, I had to biograph to fall back on. There you go, because I didn't hire you, did I? Well, I'm son of a bitch. No, no, but you know, I knew who you were because you always came to the biograph. And was reviewing yeah. back in those days, too. So right. I, I know one of the things you've been involved with forever is the James River Film Festival. And today you're here to talk to me about the James River Short Film Festival Showcase. Tell me what that's about exactly. It all goes back to 1994 when we did the first James River Film Festival. And this would be, would be part of the James, annual James River Film Festival spring program would be the jury competition. And you've been part of that before. You were a, part, a jury member years and years ago. Right. It was held live at uh, one of the VCU buildings downtown, the large buildings. You know, we started out by giving $2,000, which is something that, you know, a lot of festivals don't give any money. Really. Right. And uh, our partner since then and beginning that first year was the Virginia Film Office. And so we did that first jury competition. And then about 10 years ago, we pulled the competition out of the main programming of the film festival, which gives us another kind of standalone event and, and also at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and uh, began calling it the James River Short Film Showcase, which is still a jury competition. Nothing's really changed. The prize is still only $2,000, right? Come on, what's happening with inflation here, Mike? <laughs> well, uh, you know, unfortunately, that those budgets don't rise with inflation. You know, we're just happy to have the Virginia Film Office partnering with us, with us all these years. Well, now, so have any of the people who have won these prizes in the past gone on to greatness? Any of them made a big Hollywood movie or anything? Or are they still more experimental type? Years ago, uh, they got it made Donnie Darko, who has a local connection with Lothian. Uh, right. Richard, Richard Kelly was a contestant years ago and won some prize money. The next thing I heard from, you know, he's got Donnie Darko coming out, you know. Footnote. Donnie Darko was directed by Richard Kelly and came out in 2001. Actually, it was supposed to take place in Middlesex, Virginia in the 80s, where a teen, Jake Gyllenhaal, experienced strange encounters with time travel and a scary giant bunny. Who judges this? Who makes the decision on who's going to get the money? Every film is viewed twice. And so sometimes you get 75 entries, sometimes you get 150. But this year we had about 78 or 9 entries. 
And wow. so we, we, we have six jurors. So each juror gets to see a set of films. And then another juror also sees the same set of films. And so to advance, you need two nominations. Right. This year, we ended up with nine entries. And I think the total running time is about 85 minutes. You know, what we, we kind of shy away from is those things that look like, you know, trying to make a, uh, a pilot or something for, for right, a larger right. project. We, we, we really encourage the experimental side, the animated, and you know, even experimental uh, narratives. I mean, anything like that. Uh, I think the short film form is, is suffering lately because uh, with the advent of all these film schools where people are thinking big bucks, I'm going to go to Hollywood, I'm going to be the next, you know, of course. You know, this or that. And, and for years, you know, short films were about all anybody could afford to make because you were shooting film, yeah, uh, yeah. as you know. To imagine a feature project was almost unfathomable back in the old days, you know. And then finally, uh, the films are screened at the museum. We're pulling it back. The next week, we have to go virtual, as I mentioned to you earlier. That's kind of how it works. And we also have the uh, uh, People's Choice Award, which is always kind of interesting. Sometimes that goes counter to the money a little bit. For that, people can actually, they watch the films and they go online and actually vote for them as opposed to filling out a paper ballot since yeah, it's going to be what, virtual. That's all, that's all we're doing this time. But there's also the, um, the late Catherine Stevens, who was a longtime employee of the Virginia Film Office. And so we give a, an annual award away in her name, the Virginia Filmmaker Award. Oh, wow. Uh, cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, so that's very cool. So I'm going to have the link on the Sifter page with this podcast, but just so if people are listening in their car or something, tell us the dates and how they can actually view it. We're going to go streaming again this year, Friday, January 28th at 7 p.m. through Sunday, January 30th through midnight. Uh, you can view the films through our website. And then uh, Kevin Downs, who is our judge this year, will come on and announce the prize winner. It's Kevin's a well-known uh, filmmaker, producer, director, editor. He's taught at numerous institutions, including Georgetown and George Washington, VCU, many places, Randolph-Macon. And then you send us your People's Choice Award uh, winner after that. And then we'll announce that the following day or so. And the website is not the VMFA. No, no. The website is jamesriverfilm.org. Well, pretty soon we'll have a list of the uh, nine finalists up and running times and titles and all that up. And uh, the show is for free. You know, we welcome donations. We are a nonprofit. We're always financially under the weather, as they say, uh, in, in Wall Street. <laughs> like artists always are, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're the starving artist festival, if there is one. So this is going to be an interesting event again this year. And I have been talking with Mike Jones, who is one of the co-directors and a longtime member of the James River Film Society, which puts on the James River Film Festival, and what we're talking about today, the James River Short Film Showcase. Yeah, support the film office and, and support us by checking out this competition. And I want to thank you, Jerry, for having us. Good deal. And we will probably talk to you again in middle of March to talk about the actual full-fledged James River Film Festival. Take care. Thank you very much. Coming soon. In theaters, Parallel Mothers, the latest from El Moldavar, featuring Penelope Cruz, who's already getting awards buzz. Clean, Adrian Brody plays a garbage collector who's trying to reconcile his violent past life of crime. And GameStop, Rise of the Players, a documentary about the Wall Street flurry over the game chain store. Continuing the 12th Annual Israeli Film Festival through the 30th, and the 27th James River Short Film Showcase runs the 28th through the 30th. In streaming, The After Party launches on the 28th on Apple. Tiffany Haddish, Dave Franco, Sam Richardson, and Ben Schwartz are among the cast who attends their high school reunion. But there's a murder, and the story is told from each character's perspective, also in a different film style for 
for each one. Also on the 28th is Janet Jackson on Lifetime, a two-night celebration of the 40th anniversary of her first album. Resident Alien returns for season two on the 26th. It'll be on Hulu, TNT, and Sci-Fi, and I will be watching. The Sifter Podcast is published every Wednesday, featuring interviews, news, and reviews of film, TV, and streaming. You can listen or sign up for subscriptions at tvjerry.com. And if you have suggestions for shows or would like to be a guest reviewer, there's contact information there, too. Thanks for listening. See you next time. For more Sifter, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.